Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. Earlier this week, the UN Security Council did something it has never done before. It held a meeting specifically focusing on violence directed against LGBT communities. The council called two witnesses, both of whom were gay men, caught up in the conflict in the Middle East. The first witness, an Iraqi, spoke to the council by phone. He spoke anonymously from an undisclosed location because he's been marked for death by ISIS. The second witness was Subi Nahas, a gay Syrian refugee now living in the USA. And one day after addressing the Security Council, Subi shared his story with me. The episode you are about to hear is in two parts. First, you will hear Subi's story and how he fled Syria once al-Qaeda's affiliate, Jabhat al-Nusra, took over his town. Next, you'll hear from Neil Grungrass, the founder of the Organization for Refuge, Asylum, and Migration, which happens to employ Subi. And Neil does an excellent job of putting the situation of LGBT refugees and asylum seekers in a larger global context. Uh, this is a great episode. I just want to say up front, thank you so much to Subi for speaking with me uh, about this issue and for speaking to the Security Council and by virtue of speaking to the Security Council, you know, telling the world his story. As always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to peruse our archive, subscribe on iTunes, get the app if you've not already done so, and send me a note. Or you can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. And now here is my conversation with Subi Nahas. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. What was it like to speak to the Security Council yesterday? It was very empowering and powerful. You don't... At first, I was really nervous, and then I realized that I shouldn't be because I'm here to represent the community that was never being represented in the Security Council, and I have to put this step stone so people can come after, like, and and do more important work. Uh, so let's let's talk about uh, that community and where you're from. So where, what town were you born, and where did you grow up? Uh, I was born in a very small town in Idlib province called Ma'arit al-Noman. It's a very closed uh, and very, very small. It's near the borders between Syria and Turkey. Uh, what was life like in Idlib, in this small town in Idlib province, uh, growing up as, as a gay Syrian man? Well, <laughs> there was no life as a gay Syrian man in, the, in that town. So that's, that's the simple answer. 
what sort of harassment or discrimination did you experience even before the, the start of the Civil War? Uh, I can like, summarize it by saying most of my experience when I was a child growing up as, an, as a gay person in Syria was harassment, mostly in school, from children and from people on the streets because they like perceive me as an effeminate man so I, I do not like confirm with their norms so they harass me in the streets, they catcall and some, some of them will go and say very very pejorative terms uh, it's children isolated me, nobody wanted to befriend me, and nobody wanted to talk to me, fear that they will be associated with my effeminacy, so it was really isolating to be a gay man growing up there. Did you ever experience physical violence? Yes. What yes. happened? Be, like few people from, high, from the primary school, they, they, they were... I, I'm sorry, talking about this is a little bit difficult. I can imagine, I know. Yeah. And the only reason I'm, I'm bringing it up is I know you've talked about it publicly and, and uh, I know it's a very personal topic. Mm -hmm. So the, the thing is, this, as I told you, that children did not want to be associated with me and some, some children just took it upon themselves that they want to maybe uh, man me up or something so to just gathered like two of them in the playground in the school and they beat me, beat me up for like I just cannot remember what happened but I can remember that I passed out and I went to the hospital yeah that's the most extreme form that I remember and when the um, protests and the civil conflict started to emerge in Syria how did your life change? Well, radically changed. I, I couldn't go out very well. People started to become more aggressive. They had more power. They had more, no, there was no authority, like, enforced. And they, 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 you, won't, you may never know what might, like, somebody might kill you, rape you, do anything, and there's no law to, to stop them. So I had to stay home. I had to be always vigilant, watching carefully around the atmosphere, the environment. So I, because anybody could come, like, do anything, and there's no consequence. So even though the, the situation for gay people in Syria before the Civil War was obviously not great, a pretty conservative society, the, the breakdown of law and order um, created sort of new threats for you? Yes. Did the, did the, the authorities, such as they were, uh, ever uh, harass you or intimidate you in any sort of official capacity? No, because I, I used to like stay in my hometown, which is pretty small so the authorities would not bother and there was no community so, so they, they wanted to target bigger communities they don't target individuals uh, and so what happened when Jabba el-Nusra uh, came to your town and came to your area when that they took over first and they wanted to enforce themselves so they started to arrest people and they they forced like checkpoints so one man that one man had some images of uh, like men in his mobile phone, so they arrested him, 
and they started to interrogate him and torturing him so they and they wanted to know more about his lifestyle and what he does and they found out that, that they accused him of being from like uh, performing sodomy so they they went to the mosque and they took it on their on themselves to cleanse the city or the town from from so, anyone who was involved in sodomy so they just announced that in mosques and they started to arrest and torture people and some 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 of them were killed too and you know being uh, effeminate or outwardly effeminate uh, mm -hmm. did you uh, how did you manage during this period during this time i i couldn't manage being outside what i did is i stayed inside i made my i my brother i had my brother like buy me everything from outside that i needed i i couldn't like i did not feel safe even go and buy grocery so i just let my my brother do it on my behalf and how did you make the decision to flee the country the decision was hard I, I I had to collect resources. I had to contact people, and and I couldn't stay because with all of these, my home was not safe too. So I couldn't stand. So I did not want to wait the militia or my 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 home or my father to take control of my life or kill me for who I am. So I contacted my friends and gathered resources in like few months. And I just run away. And where did you run to? Uh, his, my friend in Lebanon offered me to stay with him for a few months. How did you cross the border? Like, what was your journey? Well, it was very scary. There are lots of checkpoints, and the journey used to take before the uprising. It used to take less than an hour, an hour and thirty minutes, but it was for at least nine hours journey and it was lots there were lots of checkpoints mostly governmental checkpoints and you have to go through certain like security checks and you have to they have to show your photo ID and they have to look your name and you'll while while then you'll you will think that they have your name on their list and they will do something and it's very nerve-wracking process uh, and you finally made it in Lebanon. Uh, how long did you stay there, and, and like, how did you find work? How did you support yourself? Uh, I stayed in Lebanon for six months, and I could not find like a proper employment there. Uh, the situation is this country is really small, and the it's overpopulated. So uh, things find like we I couldn't find a job there and I worked as a freelancer for as translator and the graphic designer and one of my friends in Turkey used to send me work so that's the only way how I survived in, in Lebanon and did you make it to Turkey that was my understanding from your testimony yes after 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 these six months my f uh, another friend in in Turkey I used to work with in a magazine for LGBT people uh, he offered me because I'm not employed in in Lebanon and my resources was running out. He offered me to go to Turkey and work with him there. Um, 
And while you're in Turkey, what was, you know, uh, you know, again, Lebanon and Turkey, both also conservative societies, not obviously in the midst of, of a civil war. Did you find your, your situation, I guess, improved? Or what, what is life like in Turkey for LGBT refugees? Well, for LGBT refugees in Turkey, it's pretty difficult because they they kind they come to Turkey and they still having their their they're very close to themselves they did not come out to themselves and they they are now in a very new society that community and they have no idea if it's, if the people there is going to accept them or not so and the host, and the the refugees themselves not just the LGBT refugees the refugees themselves if they knew they will shun you out of their the community so you will lose support outside of your, of your country so that would make you more conservative um and you also in your testimony referenced um that there were likely to be ISIS operatives uh operating in refugee communities mm-hmm. uh, how did you i guess how did you know that and how did you um, try to keep your identity as a gay person sort of secret? Well, from where I lived, I did not hide my identity as a gay man because I lived in the city among the host community. And the ISIS operative did not go among the refugee community. They were, they were in the city itself. They were going there having their meetings you see them like hovering and like walking in the streets you you can distinguish them easily the they still have their beards they still have their outfits they still have everything that 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 would distinguish them from like a normal person that is not um, a militia or not involved in any kind of like extreme extremism um and how did you make it to the USA? I mean, my understanding is you're, you're resettled here. Is that right? Yes, that's right. So did you apply for asylum based on your status as a gay person? Yes, but it's a little bit more tricky because we're Syrians and Syrians yet does not have an official program with the, higher, uh, with the UNSCR, the Higher Commissioner for Refugees. And we have to be referred by an INGO or an NGO to, and we have that the, the case should be exceptionally vulnerable only, and it's very very narrow chance that we will get it. Uh, and so, what? How did you put together your application? What What did you say? Uh, well, I was well. I was working with with Save the Children back then, and there's my friend. She uh, helped me, and she, like, in fact, she wrote the, I, I narrated the story, and she just wrote the story. I just, it's, it's as what I narrated in the UN, is almost the same that I, I forwarded to the UNSCR. Now, how long have you been in the, in the USA? Um, two and a half months now. And uh, are you working? Yes, I am. I'm uh, working with Oram International now. How did you become contacted by the Security Council? How did that happen? Well, I think the Security Council was planning for this event like long time ago or even before I come to the U.S. But the, they had only one issue and problem that nobody accepted from that part of the world. Nobody accepted to come out as an openly gay person in front of the Security Council and speak. So they contacted Oram 
and through Neil, the CEO of Oram, and he offered that. He said that the the UN, uh, the US UN ambassador like arranging this meeting in the UN Security Council and they want somebody to testify and to talk about what their experiences and I was I was I don't know it was exciting and and I said yes but it took a long time to think about it um and what was weighing against you speaking with them I, I mean I imagine you might have friends or family back in Syria uh, who might be perhaps at risk because of this? Yes, that's correct. I have to think about all the consequences and maybe my friends would be, maybe my family would be in danger, maybe, but I had to to do it because if I, like, if I don't do it, I, I, may, I may never know if, if I did do it and if I don't do it, there's still a risk. So if if my family were at risk, if I don't if I do it, my family would be at risk. If I don't do it, the LGBT community will still be at risk. So it's there's a equation that cannot be solved. Have you heard from anyone in Syria since your testimony yesterday? Any members of the LGBT community who are still there in hiding? Yes, a lot. What 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 have they heard? What have they said to you? Uh, the thing that I heard until now, they're all positive, and they 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 are taking pride in it, and they are making it. That made them really stronger. That's that's the all the positive that I that the feedback that I received. All positive feedback so far. Yes. Yes. Um. And and I, do you hope to return to Syria one day, or do you think you're going to be pretty well settled here in the USA? Well, if I want to return to Syria, it's going to be under one like circumstance is to have a civil society there and to have people start to, to form a community, especially for LGBT people, to form a community and to, to help them to, to, to navigate through the, the systems and navigate through their lives. But to go back and live under, I don't see it happening, no. Uh, well, uh, Subi, thank you so much for for speaking with me and, and for your bravery and speaking to this council and, and, and for what you're doing. Thank you. And now here is Neil Grungrass, founder of the Organization for Refuge, Asylum, and Migration, ORAM. The blocks to access to the system for LGBTI refugees are so systemic and, and so harsh that most LGBTI people never actually get through the refugee process. They really don't access it and don't, don't get it, don't get through it. The, of course, the experience of every refugee is, is you know, can be harrowing. Um, you've just lost everything. You're going to a country where you may not um, have anybody. You probably don't speak the language, where you don't have a job, you know, where you're nobody. And that's true for everybody. But uh, the difference is that uh, most refugees migrate with their families, uh, and very often refugees who are not LGBT will also find family or find community that they can join in their new country so that, um, you know, they have something to latch on to. Remember, I mean, they have, they come with, refugees come with nothing. Um, so these resources that, uh, you know, that we often think of as extras, like, you know, having family there or having access to, um, to an informal job market, is, that's critical for refugees. That's how refugees stay alive. 
but when you're talking about LGBT refugees, they arrive, they have absolutely nothing. Um, they can't ask for help. Uh, very often, LGBT refugees are actually targeted in their country of passage. Uh, and this is true in just about every country um, that there are critical numbers of LGBT refugees, uh, whether we're talking about Kenya, or whether we're talking about Turkey, or whether we're talking about uh, Lebanon. If you're an LGBT person, you're going to be subjected to the same kind of mistreatment you are subjected to back home, except that this time, you're not only subjected to homophobic mistreatment, but you also don't have legal status. Uh, and I'm, uh, one thing that, that Subi referenced is, you know, being shunned by, by your family. And that's something you just said, too, like the, the normal support structures that a refugee might rely on just aren't necessarily as existent uh, if you're LGBT, right? That's putting it really, really nicely. Uh, because very often that support that uh, structure, which would normally be a support structure, becomes your predator, becomes your persecutor. Uh, uh, so not, not only aren't you supported by your family in the country of passage, you need to hide from your family. You know, obviously, a number of countries around the world not only criminalize uh, uh, same-sex coupling, but also, you know, have pretty harsh penalties for things like sodomy. Do countries in general, do Western countries, do destination countries to which people seek asylum, consider LGBT status as relevant in whether or not to uh, consider uh, to grant an asylum? Sexual orientation and gender identity is definitely one of the bases for for refugee status and for asylum in most countries today, most countries that have functioning asylum systems recognize applicants based on their sexual orientation, gender identity. Um, it's less and less of an issue in the West, the lack of access. Um, and so does the UNHCR, which is which processes more refugee cases than any other body. So the legal mechanisms are in place uh, to grant the cases. The, the Problem, the problems are invisible problems that you really can't legislate. They're systemic blocks, uh, blocks to access. Uh, and the blocks to access are so, so severe that very few people who are LGBT can actually get through them. Can you describe one of those or a few of them? Sure. Um, if we're talking about applying for asylum, right? Apply, asylum, asylum is what happens when you arrive at a new country. And uh, you say, I'm here and I'm afraid to go back home. I'm Syrian, uh, I'm in the US, and I'm terrified to go back home because I'll be killed because I'm gay. Give me asylum. Well, in order to do that, you have to have gotten into the US. Well, the US visa system puts a responsibility on every consular officer to make sure that everyone who applies for a visa is going to go back home, that they're likely to go back home. And what do they look for when they're looking to see if somebody should get a visa? They ask, is this person employed at home? How well educated are they? What are their links to their home? In other words, what, what are the reasons that they, they would go back? Do they have family back home? Do they have a wife or a husband and children back home? Um, do they have a job? Do they own a home? Do they have money in the bank? Um, all of these indicators, all of these indicators operate against somebody who's LGBT because if you're LGBT and you've been hounded because you've been known to be LGBT, you're probably unemployed. You probably don't have a house. Needless to say, you're not married and you don't have children most of the time. 
um, you appear very much like somebody who's desperate and needs to get out. And no consul will give you a visa. So that what that means is that uh, unless you're one of the, the exceptions, unless you're one of the wealthy, educated haves versus have-nots, and you know how to appear like you're really going to go back home, you're probably going to be denied your visa. So the vast majority of uh, LGBT applicants never get into this. Not to mention uh, costs, uh, not to mention uh, flight costs, which most marginalized mm -hmm. LGBT people don't have. Uh, not to mention the fact that um, if you are from another country and you're arriving somewhere where you want to apply for asylum, you probably will be able to stay with your family or with friends. And again, here, um, if your family in Zimbabwe tells the family in, uh, in New York that you're a homosexual, they're not going to let you stay in their house. So you're looking at being homeless for a year and a half. But Subi's story is, seems to be somewhat exceptional uh, because he applied directly through UNHCR. Uh, while in a transit country, while while in Turkey, right, and and that, in his application said he was you know fleeing persecution. That's absolutely right. Um, Subi applied through the UNHCR in the international refugee system, which is uh, overseen and managed by the UNHCR, um, and that system requires not, that someone not be in their country of destination. Uh, but UNHCR actually handles cases in countries of transit. Mm -hmm which Turkey is one of, um, that is the a very small minority of LGBT people applying for protection. Very tiny minority. Uh, now, what's the reason? It's that you need to go to a country of passage. So you need to go from Syria or Iraq to a third country, or you need to go from Uganda to Kenya, or from Zimbabwe to South Africa. Um, and there you apply for refugee status. Now, these countries tend to be places which are very difficult for LGBT people and sometimes which are highly, highly homophobic. <clears throat> and the three countries that I just uh, gave you as examples, Turkey, Kenya, uh, and South Africa. Uh, in Turkey, there's no law prohibiting same-sex relations, but there are very high levels of violence against LGBT people. There's a tremendous employment discrimination and housing discrimination. <clears throat> so severe that it's really very difficult to live there if you're LGBT in most places, if you're visibly LGBT. Um, so you, if you're coming from Syria, you might escape to Turkey if you have absolutely, absolutely no choice at all. Um, but you're going to be stuck in Turkey for quite a long time. Uh, your means of support are going to be from very low to non-existent. Uh, and you can probably at some point count on being getting so desperate that you're going to have to resort to selling your body. Now, in, in Subi's case, because he's so talented, because he has professional level English, he could work as a professional interpreter and translator in Turkey and somehow, you know, retain his, uh, retain his physical integrity. Mm -hmm. uh, but otherwise it's very, very difficult. Um, what I'd like to add is that we need practical steps now. Uh, we need to actually implement what we know needs to be done in order to make it possible for people who are persecuted to leave. Uh, we shouldn't be so naive as to think that uh, a discussion at the Security Council is going to change countries' policies or laws, or that it's going to change very deeply ingrained social homophobia and violence. 
Uh, so what we need to do if we want to save lives, if we really want to see a practical effect to this wonderful initiative, is to work on all the items we know need to be worked on in order to create safety on the ground and to make it possible for people to get out in safety and to find safe haven, to find shelter in other countries. Uh, well, Neil, thank you so much for your time and for your work on this. Thank you very much, Mark. Thank you all for listening. An important topic for sure. As always, please leave a review on iTunes. If you enjoy this podcast, it helps other people discover the podcast as well. Oh, also, big news. Daughters of the Red Light, Coming of Age in Mumbai's Brothels by Shanur Sirvai is number one on the Amazon bestseller list for international affairs books. We beat out that old gas bag Alan Dershowitz who wrote a screed about the Iran deal. But yes, we are the number one book on international affairs in the kindle store so please do check it out there's a link to the book on globaldispatchespodcast.com it's a great book just one dollar 99 cents free if you have an amazon prime account so do check it out all right thanks so much bye